Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 13 of Impact Boom. My name's Tom Allen. I'm the director of Stem Positive, and I'm passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today, we're speaking with Stephanie Akahui Hughes, founder and lead architect of Aka Architects. Stephanie is a strong advocate of creating value through cross-disciplinary interactions and believes that sustainable innovation emerges at the intersection of different forms of interaction. Stephanie was awarded her professional degree in architecture with high honours at the American University of Beirut, where she won numerous academic and national awards. Soon after, she began working at OMA. And after five years at OMA, Stephanie founded ACA, an architecture and design studio specialised in designing spaces that foster creativity, collaboration and learning. So on today's podcast, we'll discuss a range of Stephanie's projects and how she works to create positive social impact in her practice. We'll talk about architecting interactions and designing positive environments. And amongst other insights, we'll discuss the role of designers and how it's changed from being a dictator to a facilitator. Stephanie, thanks very much for joining us. Great. To kick off, Stephanie, could you please share a little bit about your background and some of the key discoveries you've made along your journey that led you into founding Aka Architects? Sure, yeah. I, I was born and raised in, uh, in Beirut, in Lebanon, which is quite a chaotic place, to say the least. Mm. Um, and of course, when that's, that's your environment, you kind of don't know anything different, yeah. so you just deal with it. Mm. And you let that kind of, uh, yeah, you absorb that really. My kind of desire behind studying architecture was this idea of the Renaissance uh, man or woman. I was just attracted to this idea of a person that was able to practice different things and actually learn from all those different fields and then feed them back into practicing the others and just enriching you know, from one field to the other. Mm. And that's really kind of what I was looking for. And I was doing that. I really chose to do architecture as a base for other things or to really keep my doors open mm. as opposed to you know doing architecture for the sake of specializing into architecture yeah. Yeah. at least that was kind of the initial thought when you're 17 and they mm. ask you what do you want to study and commit to for the rest of your life yeah. right um, the typical question exactly so that was kind of behind uh, what I wanted to do and I was really interested in creating something new mm. uh, creating something that wasn't there before that for me was just fascinating yeah. uh, quite nerve-wracking at that stage but but still fascinating yeah. so I did that and I studied architecture in the American University so that's very much the American system um, there's a lot of focus on design and, and creativity much mm. more than on the technical aspects of architecture per yep. se and I was I was quite aware of that and I chose that school specifically for this mm. uh, I thought that you know technical knowledge material specific things are going to change yeah, yeah. 
if they keep evolving, so those are things you have to keep learning. Yeah. And for me, there was no point to learn that in school. Yeah. I, I thought I'll learn that on the job, and yeah. I'll, then I'll, as long as they change, I'll keep learning. So I yeah. really wanted to understand or learn a way of thinking before anything else. Mm. So I did that, 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 I enjoyed the studies, that was great, and then uh, right after graduation, I joined uh, OMA, or OMA, which is the Office for Metropolitan Architecture, and it's kind of whatever, in, in different rankings you have different criteria and it's very often in the top three uh, worldwide. So yeah. I was very, very excited to join that as Absolutely. my first official kind of uh, job out of college. Yeah. I was very, very excited and I joined that uh, that practice in, uh, in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. And then I was there for five years, which for the people who know OMA or have been there, it's it's you know it's dinosaur years really, so mm. <laughs> or dog years as they say. So they count <laughs> as forty or fifty years, simply because we were working at actually quite a lot. But also the kind of amount of information and, and learning and things you get to do yeah. is is quite intensive. So if it you know it feels like in every hour you're kind of putting the work or yeah. knowledge or experience of four or five hours, mm. and that was fascinating. I remember the first few months I literally felt my brain learning things wow. it's a very very strange sensation and it's a very it's just enticing mm. uh, I really felt like I had to assimilate things almost tangibly mm. and that was fascinating so my learning curve was you know going up really fast and then yeah. of course after a few months it kind of uh, plateaus a little yeah. bit and then you learn other things yeah. and and I was very very lucky with my experience there um, I, I worked on projects that were uh, being built, mm. uh, which sounds like, um, yeah, of course, what else? But actually, <laughs> if you know anything about architecture, yeah. you'll know that's actually a very big luxury. Yeah. There were projects in the Middle East, in, in Qatar, and I was, I was back and forth very often. And it was a very, very exciting experience. Mm. And I always say I learned a lot about what to do and what not to do. Mm. And what not to do simply had to do with my way of, of, uh, of looking at things or my, my own belief of what architecture was. Mm. So with that came also the realization that this is not the way I wanted to practice or this is not the way entirely that I saw things yeah. or that's not what I thought the role of the architect was. And yeah. So there, was, there came a time where I was questioning you know, is this how it's done? Mm. Um, and of course, you ask around, you look around, and people say, well, this this is the best architecture practice in the world, or one of the best at least, so what else do you yeah. want? Yeah. And somehow I wasn't really satisfied with that answer. And then from there came this whole, uh, you know, what does it mean to be an architect? What do I want to do really? What is my role? Where am I bringing value? Mm. You know, there's a lot of things that were happening that I thought, no, this is not what it should be about. It yeah. should be about something else. Mm. And from all of that thinking, along with other exercises, I also went back to school actually during my work there. I was looking for more. I was looking for something. Mm. And from all of this search and investigation came the vision that I now call architecting interaction. Mm. And... Uh, Aka is only born as a vehicle for that vision. Yeah. So f for me, founding a firm uh, just for the sake of having a firm mm. and then having to run after projects and you know keep it to keep the firm running is, yeah. is a bit besides the point, mm -hmm. for me at least. Mm -hmm. the, it was a vision first and uh, an idea and this vision of what architecture would be about, where is the value, why just you know one more architect in this world? There's so many of us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know why all of this? And then that vision came came about, and I'll tell you more about it later. Mm. And then I figured that to make that vision reality, to kind of apply it in projects or apply it in anything for that matter, mm. 
I needed a, a vehicle for that. Yeah. And this is where Aka was born. Fantastic. It sounds like you've got a really strong sense of purpose, which, yeah. is, which is something which, you know, in speaking to a lot of people about this, this topic, they yeah. say it's something that's fundamental yeah. to, to drive your business forward, yeah. right? In watching your TEDx speech you gave uh, in Belfast, you speak about segregation and disunity and right. fragmentation, and that's you know some of the things you witnessed when you grew up in Lebanon. So can you please share a bit about how this shaped your your current world views, and then how it sort of informed this sort of architectural practice that you're talking about now? Yeah, sure. Um, growing up was you know I grew up uh, among many. Many problems, and you know, you're you're a child. You're playing around, and you hear adults having conversations over your head about there's a problem here and there's a problem there. And every time I asked, what's the what's the problem or what's the cause of the problem, yeah. you'd get very different answers. Mm. Never anything clear. Never anything you know to the point. Yeah. And for me, this was really a sign that a problem never has one cause. Mm. That was kind of my, my maybe fatalist conclusion, <laughs> but it was my conclusion as, as a child and even now, um, at least you know, large global problems that we're discussing uh, that are very prominent these days never have one cause, which also means you can never address them or, or solve them per se by focusing on one solution. For me, the, my response to that was really looking at this notion of holistic approach or holistic thinking mm-hmm. and what I call comprehensive thinking or comprehensive innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, this desire to look at the context, at a full context, as full as possible. Mm-hmm. There's always a chance we miss here or there some aspects. Yeah. But this is also why I think that the answers cannot come from one topic or one field, but also not from one party or one expert, mm-hmm. no matter how experts we are. Yeah. Uh, and this is where you know notions such as participation or collaborative processes or gathering insights or looking at different issues in different fields, all of those notions have their seed into this belief that it cannot come from one person or one field, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. We're hoping that's a solution or maybe even better a question or an answer or, you know. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting insight and something else that you shared in that same TEDx talk about yeah, that, yeah. that fragmented behaviour and thinking yeah, and solutions yeah, yeah. And, and using that comprehensive innovation as a solution to that. Yeah, well, we hear a lot of talk about innovation, mm. um, even collaboration, uh, co-creation, participation, they're all very big buzzwords yeah. at the moment, and yeah. I really needed to kind of define what I meant when I used them. Mm. Um, First of first and foremost to myself, but also to other people. And for me, innovation is not enough um, because we can innovate within the very restrained uh, limits of one field. Yeah. I guess it would still be called innovation, mm. but that's not the one I'm talking about. That's not the one I'm referring to. For me, this, it's great, but not enough. Yeah. You know, we have we're facing global challenges today, and. There's many reasons why, and for me, I really believe that one of the reasons why they became so prominent is because we haven't done anything about them for such a long time, uh, let alone actually you know, making them worse. But well, let's not go there. We actually haven't addressed them for a long time, or we haven't addressed them properly or in the right way. And I'm still not, I'm not saying that because I have the answer to how to address them. Yeah. I'm just experimenting with the approach to how we could start kind of addressing them or start to find a Mm. way or a process to address them and for me that really has to do with this idea of 
comprehensive innovation. And there's kind of two parts in that. The, yeah. the, the part of comprehensiveness, which is about, you know, we need more than one expert. We need also the people that we don't necessarily look at as experts. Yeah. Users, for yeah. me, are, you know, the main kind of source of, of insight and expertise. Sure. Yeah. And we don't usually, you don't usually see them around the table. Mm. Um, but also this idea that it's more than one field and more than one yeah, more than one expertise, really. I think our education systems have really developed in vertical silos yeah. and were much more specialized in different things, uh, in everly narrow and, and deep things, in a sense. And that's, that's, that's good. Yeah. And so far, you know, it has its kind of merits uh, over the centuries. Mm. And I think we have not complemented that with this idea of horizontal yeah. Uh, people or people that would actually be able to see patterns between different fields or enrich one through the other and stuff like that. So this is kind of the, the this matrix, as you, uh, if if you will, of vertical and horizontal lines is what's behind this idea of comprehensive. And then of course the idea of innovation is because whatever answers we have uh, from from before um, are not working anymore. You know. You see that with companies, with corporate companies, yeah. with uh, governments, with nations. We, we do the same thing we used to do and somehow it's not working anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So we obviously need new ways. We need yeah. new answers, new ways, new questions. Mm-hmm. And that no- this notion of new is where innovation is needed. Yeah. So that's, that's really what I mean with comprehensive innovation. Fantastic. Yeah. Really, really interesting. So what projects are you involved in currently that, that you're particularly proud of? Yeah, that question made me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? Because I'm, I think we, as a team, um, my colleagues and I at ACA were very, very blessed in the sense that we're actually proud of every project we've done. And that's, of course, lucky, but we've, we've worked for that. Yeah. And I think if, if you look at it, um, you know, part of me is thinking, well, of course I should be proud of all the projects, otherwise why would I do them? But of course the reality of things is very different and it's very easy to do projects you wouldn't be proud of either because you had to do them to keep the kind of office running or because you had every good intention at the beginning but somehow the process didn't go as you yeah. wanted or yeah. you know a number of reasons why they would they would go wrong yeah. uh, if, if that's the right expression. I think because Akka was born based on a vision, mm. um, our raison d'être, our, our, yeah, our reason for existing as a company, it's very, very clear. Mm. And it doesn't have to be a company. It could also be something else. For yeah. now, I don't know what else, so it's yeah. a company. Um, but it's kind of this engine to, to develop this vision. It's far from done, obviously, mm-hmm. and uh, to develop the vision, but also develop the applications of the vision. Yeah. And for me, it's, it's really interesting to kind of look at that. And I've started developing this vision from before the company ever existed. Um, I started being invited to uh, give speeches and lectures about the vision, um, I think over a year before the company existed Mm. as an entity. And that was very, very interesting because it turns out, and it wasn't really planned as such, right? It just happened this way. And, but if I reflect on it now, it started putting the word out there. And when ACA came as a company, it it was very clear why ACA existed and mm-hmm. what we did at ACA. Yeah. So part of this is that that means that most clients that come to us come because of the vision. Mm. Either and a shared purpose? 
the motives are different. <laughs> some uh, some clients come to us because it's exactly aligned to what they do and what they want to do, mm-hmm. and now they're looking at their space and they want to kind of align their space to their okay. their vision and mission and, yeah. and the impact hub is, for example, mm-hmm. uh, one of those sure. example. Um, some others are uh, curious about it. Mm-hmm. Some others uh, don't understand it, and they're kind of there's still some attraction there. Yeah. Uh, so they come to us and they seem to be saying, we want to work with you, but we don't want what you do until you explain it. So there is, there is some of that, which is also quite interesting. And then we have clients that came to us thinking, you know, my competitor did that. So I think I needed to, not sure why, um, but, but, but yeah. do that for me, right? Yeah. And this is especially if I talk about uh, offices, for example, or companies, mm. we, we've, because of the vision, uh, and the core of the vision is really to foster interactions. Mm-hmm. And that's based on the belief that interactions are the seeds of innovation. Yeah. So if you want to talk about any form of innovation, it starts with interactions. Mm-hmm. And then for me, if we were to, as architects or designers or you know, in any way, consultants in any way, yeah. we cannot innovate for you mm-hmm. in, in your field, but we can design your context so that that context helps you do what you want to do better. Uh, and this is very clear in offices. Yeah. It, it applies to museums, train stations, yeah. public spaces, private yeah. homes, anything you can think of. Mm-hmm. But because that innovation discourse is very clear in, um, in offices, yeah. they get it quite quickly. Mm-hmm. So you also see companies that say, you know, um, very often they talk about this open plan yeah. or a shared office or you know co-working spaces and yeah. a lot of clients would use these words without really knowing what's behind them yeah. or why they're beneficial mm-hmm. and they just want the end result without knowing the reasons why. Yeah. So we've had a lot of conversations with different clients and it's really interesting because it's not about convincing them why our vision works for them. It's about discovering together if it works for them. Uh, Not everybody needs the same solution. So even if you as a bank think that your competitor bank has openly, suddenly an open plan, and you want that too, it might not be the best for you based on the nature of your work, your mission, what you're trying to achieve, etc., etc. So we've had a lot of conversations where I think we've learned as much, if not more, than the client themselves. So that's really, really exciting. Yeah, fantastic. And you know, we, we have a number of, of projects, some of them are, uh, a lot of them are, are kind of driven by clients. So uh, I've mentioned the Impact Hub, which is a co-working space. Where we are right now. Uh, where we are right now, yeah. So it's a co-working space for entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs, and the, the people working here go from um, one person freelancer to up to eight, ten people yep. uh, teams. And we're actually also one of one of those teams. So mm. we've designed the space, and we also work in it. We, this is our office as well. The ultimate test bed. It's fantastic. It's really, really, and it's actually not the first Impact Hub we've done. So right. I've started as a member in the Impact Hub uh, a number of years ago. I can't yeah. even before at the very beginning before Aka was born. Excellent. I needed to kind of immerse myself with other people that yeah. were thinking differently, and and that was a perfect environment to do that. And I started there as a member, and then um, they were actually one of the first clients of ACA in designing the second Impact Hub, which was about three or four years ago yeah. across the city. And then we stayed there. We grew there. So it was it, it went from me to then a couple of people that mm-hmm. were working with me, and now we're a whole team. Yeah. And uh, just a few months ago, we moved again. And we've also designed this Impact Hub number three. Mm, which is <laughs> so a fantastic it's, space. It's fantastic. It. Yeah, yeah. We're really proud of it. And it's not done. Uh, yeah. And this is part of our process, actually, to start mm. inhabiting the space before we call it uh, complete. Yeah. 
it's really nice it's it's you know it's for us it's really really educational mm. to really see how people use a space um, that you thought was going to work this way or that way yeah. um, and it's the ultimate test really so um, I hope we did a good job because we have to stay in it <laughs> yeah, absolutely yeah so it's really good I mean you've written a whole book about this topic called yes. architecting interactions yes. right so could you please talk us through perhaps some of those key arguments um, some of which I'm sure you've you've covered now already yeah, yeah, some of it. The, the, the book is really focused on the vision, so a lot of the, the visions, how it came to be, what it means and how it's applied are mm. kind of covered in the book. My main concern before writing a book was this notion that a book arguments something, mm. um, which I don't really agree with in mm. a sense. I hope I make it very clear in the book, or at least my intention was to make it very clear, that it's not about actually arguing uh, anything or about presenting arguments. This mm. is really very much a personal vision mm. and obviously you could agree or disagree yep. uh, in any case I think this is what I, I, I believe um, this is what I've been testing yep. uh, this is what my team and I you know apply and mm. then we learn something we go yep. back we refine it's an ongoing very process yeah. very iterative and very very much ongoing we're a very young company in in you know the, the scale of companies mm. um, which means we're not nearly uh, close to fixing anything yeah. or finalizing anything and yeah. that was my main reservation about having a book I've been speaking for uh, for years now uh, and every speech uh, almost every speech people ask well do you have a book and I say no and I go home and I'm thinking how come I don't have a book and then I think <laughs> well a, a book is so final mm. it, you know it's it's there it's printed yeah. um, if you go back to like ancient civilizations this this culture of, of oral storytelling yeah. just felt much more suited for mm -hmm. this living vision that was still changing and still yeah. evolving. You know, I don't anticipate any any change of core. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The core will always be the same because it's really coming from, from myself. Yeah. However, the, the vision will mature, it will grow, it will evolve, mm -hmm. at least I hope so, you know, yeah. that we'll find new ways of applying it. Yeah. And, and one of the main things we did actually at the very beginning, or I did even before Aka was born, was to say, well, this is... You know, I've I've given a lot of speeches. The the kind of recurrent question was always, "This is a great vision. It sounds wonderful. Yep. How do you apply it mm -hmm. in what is called real life? Sure. Right? With the bad guy, like totally contractors. Yeah. yeah. And how do you do that? And back then, I didn't have an answer to this because I hadn't even tried it. Or you know, it was the very beginning of of trying to formulate mm -hmm. this this vision, this perspective of a different future, yeah. really. But I did, I did sit down and, and had to look at the process, and I looked at the process. I know from architecture and other design disciplines and, and creative disciplines, and it just was, it was I think, uh, Einstein who said, if you do the same thing, expect different results. That's just insanity. Mm. So I couldn't do that, obviously, because yeah. the processes I had around me did not lead to creating yeah. the value I was looking to create. Um, so then I had to actually develop a custom process. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. No, it's, it's really, really interesting and, and it's going to be great to see further projects unfold so that you evolve this, this way of practicing and turning it into action. So it's going to yeah. be great to watch. You began at OMA yeah. um, and you've seen that very traditional architect vision. Yeah. You're moving into a new territory in many yeah. ways. Yeah. Um, what, if you could define it in a, in a few sort of key points, what, what do you think those key changes have been since you've been practicing? I think the traditional way of of practicing architecture it was probably needed at a certain time mm. when it emerged 
you know, I do believe that people do things because they think there is value in it. Um, yeah. And if if that came to be, then there was a reason why it came to be. However, if you go back, uh, you know, even before our modern times, uh, architects are, it's, it's a relatively new profession. Mm. Um, and there was a study a few years ago that was uh, actually really demonstrating that all the architects in the world build or work for 1% of the world's population. Mm. So that means that 99% of the world's population are doing arguably fine yep. without us. Yep. <laughs> and that, I think, is a very, very scary kind of perspective for mm. architects. So there, there's been like a process of mystifying the profession. Yep. Uh, and I'm not sure that's needed, to be mm. honest. Mm. Uh, I'm sure a lot of architects would hate me for saying that, but it, I don't think it's needed. Mm. I think it's a very complex role. So I can see why it became mystified and why there was this kind of aura around it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a complex, but it's not complicated, mm. really. And if you look at it, for me, I think the architect is responsible for a number of things in, in the process. And one of that is bringing all the parties together. And one of mm. that is kind of outlining the vision. And, yeah. and you could do that by dictating it because you think you know what's best for other people mm. or you can do that based on insights and um, learning you get from the different people concerned mm. by by the project you're working yep. on and for us you know the, the, the process that we developed the first phase is very much focused on what we call mapping the community of the project yep. uh, community not in a social sense per se but it's mm. really just that all the different groups of people concerned mm. by by the project. We've yep. done uh, offices, we've done schools, we've done public uh, projects, we've done private projects, and it's always, there's always a certain community, however small or large, mm. around every project. And that starts with the users, yeah. who might not be the clients. Normally, you know, architects deal with the clients or the client representative, and that's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a very big missed opportunity there. So exactly. we try and involve, um, we don't try, we do involve all the different groups. And every group will give you insights that the other group cannot give you. Mm. And from all of these, the project just emerges almost on its own. Yeah. I always say, you know, we don't ask people what they want we ask people to understand what the project wants to be. Mm. It's not about what people want the project to be, yeah. Yeah. because this is where things go wrong. Yeah. Uh, I've heard many, many times, and I'm sure I'll hear it again, uh, you cannot ask people what they want because people don't know what they want, and people will give you the example of Ford, who is saying, if you ask me, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Mm. And it is true, sometimes people do not know what they want, and I think that's a whole other issue because as a humanity, we haven't been educated in that field. We've been left out of the profession of architecture, mm. so we don't know how to relate to spaces. Yeah, but yeah. that's a whole other issue. At today, some people don't know what they want, but it doesn't mean we don't ask them. Mm. It means I believe it's my responsibility as an architect to help them figure out what they want yeah. and then be able to give them what they think they want or what they discovered they want and mm. then that little bit of extra. Yeah. It, it's not to say that architects are not the experts and they're not leading and they don't have the vision. It's mm. just to say, take the, the kind of insights and perspectives of all the other people that are going to use the project, clean the project, yeah. deliver to the project, yeah. look at the project from across the street, etc., mm. etc. Et yeah. You know, yeah. it's it's... It's a very, it's much wider sure. um, than me and my team sitting in our office and kind of sketching visions uh, blindly in a sense. So at least this is what I believe.
Yeah, no, absolutely. It reminds me of the beginning of my design career and how it's shifted towards uh, this very yeah. user-centered approach and, and yeah. participatory approach. So there's a lot of alignment there. So in terms of students, the architecture students who are listening or design students or other students, yeah. they're about to start their career yeah. and they would like to use their profession to create some sort of positive social change impact. What advice would you give to them uh, in starting that that career off? Well, there's a number of skills uh, and qualities, I think, that are, are needed. They've always been needed, mm. um, but we somehow got away without them, and, and you know we got away with it without them, and now I think they're, they're really needed. Mm. Uh, but before these qualities, it's really about clarifying for yourself what you believe or what you think or why do you really want to be an architect? Mm. And it's a very, very scary question, especially for students about to start their career because that implies they're actually finished studying. Mm-hmm. Uh, studying architecture is not easy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a bit of a, of, a, of a torturous, wonderful process. And if the answer to the question of why do I want to be an architect is not a satisfying, proactive, positive answer, then it basically you shouldn't be an architect. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not an easy profession. And for me, the only reason that it's worth it is because of that that driver that I found in, in my own vision. Yeah. And I think, you know, if, if you believe in that, that's great. It doesn't have to be a new vision in a sense. It doesn't have to be something that nobody else has. Yeah. But it has to be something you genuinely believe in. Mm. And if somebody else has it, join them. Yeah. Join forces, you know, work with other people. Yeah. And even if you work with people that have a different vision, there's a lot of learning to be, mm. to be, to be done. So really just exercise and practice and be critical of the way you work and be critical of what you're doing in in whatever practice uh, you choose, whether it's something aligned to what you think or or not. Mm. And then, you know, there are qualities like really just listening and actively learning. Um, Not in the sense of, yeah, you learn from everything, but really actively kind of reflecting on what you're learning and if that really feels right if that's really aligned to what you what your values are as a, as a person before anything yeah. um, for me there's no difference between a person the, the person and the professional yeah. you know it's it, it's only business doesn't exist it's really it is personal yeah. always <laughs> yeah. so you really want to keep those those personas in yourself aligned um, and I think that if if that's if all of those things are in place um, yeah you're onto a very uh, very fulfilling path Difficult, exciting, and, and fulfilling. Fantastic. Yeah. So in, in having the opportunity to get out there and create these projects and, and see them morph and change, just like we are at, at Impact Burn, yeah. how do you go about measuring the social impact or the impact of these projects? Yeah. Uh, do you have any specific tools you use? And how does that work? Yeah, so basically our first and kind of largest tool is is the process we used and very quickly that's a four-phase process Mm -hmm. the first phase is what we call appreciate and this is a phase where there's no design yet Um, and what we do in that phase is first of all as I mentioned map the community of the project who are different people concerned Mm -hmm. by this project and then actually start talking to them Uh, and this is where we have different conversations with different groups uh, focused on different things and for me we don't want to talk about what people want the space to be until the very end. Mm. The questions are about people's lives, 
people's uh, patterns, yeah. uh, you know, what people are trying to achieve in the big picture, yeah. uh, and then how they do that. If it's mm. a home, it's about how they live. So we map the days, we map the flows of yeah. people, we map how they move, what they think, mm-hmm. uh, and then we talk about what they want the space to do for them. So it's not about what the space looks like, although mm. people will always be very quick to tell you, you know, everybody is a little bit of a designer, people yeah. have aesthetic senses yeah. and, and tastes, and people will share that with you. Mm. And that's great, and it's not about that. So there's also a constant skill of, of, of kind of, yeah, really walking people through their own psychology and, and walking them through their own way of thinking and really having the skill to translate what they say into what they mean, etc., yeah. etc. Et and it's a, it's a very challenging beginning because people are different, no one will agree on, on, on things, etc., etc. And it's, our, it's really our role to, to reconciliate all of this as the architects. Yeah. Um, one of the very few things I did when I started developing this vision was I take some psychology courses. Mm. Um, I just I suddenly had the realization that all we do is for people as architects, yeah. and we have no clue yeah. how people think, yeah. how people behave. You know, we have no mm. clue. Nobody ever teaches us, at least not in my journey, not in the main universities, yeah. not in the main offices. You have no clue who's this creature mm. that we're designing for. Yeah. And that's really, really uh, scary, so that's a side note. But yeah. maybe first to go back to your question about students, do that. It, it's not about becoming psychologists or psychiatrists, yeah. it's just about a basic knowledge mm. of human psychology. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, so this is really kind of the, the first phase, and then we move on to the second phase where we use all of these insights and learning to come together around what is the vision mm. for the project. Yeah. And this is still not about space. It's, it's about the vision of the project and what the project is meant to deliver mm. or what the project is meant to do or how is it meant to help the people in it, etc., yeah. etc. And then we go into the, the kickstart phase, which is the kind of implementation phase. And this is where the traditional process of architecture is, as, as you know it. So this is where we start designing, developing, mm. uh, demolition, construction. All yeah. of this happens there. Yeah. And we end that phase before the, the project is completed per se. Mm. So of course, you know, safety, hygiene, security, all of that stuff. I've had the question, well, what if, you know, what if the ceiling collapses, it's not going to collapse. This is all done. What's not done is the the notions and the dimensions of inhabiting the space. And depending on every project, we judge with the the community when is it good for them to start using the space, where in the process. And as soon as that happens, there's a whole new wave of insights that yeah. appear. Yeah. Not only have we been talking to the people from the beginning of the of the process, even before design, which most processes don't do, mm. still, when people move into the space and start using it, it's not about what they said before. I say very often that you know we work with the honesty of behavior. Mm. There's something in behavior that's much more honest than language could ever be. Yeah. And that's not in the sense of intentional uh, deceit or anything like that. It's yeah. just behavior is very different. So we look at flows and how people use a space and what does that mean mm. uh, for them. So the last phase, which is where we are now in the Impact Hub, is where people are using the space and we're refining based on what we know from the previous process, but also really observing how people are using the space, what are the habits forming, um, what are the flows that are, you know, kind of tracing in the space, etc., etc. And then we really can create something that fits like a glove. Mm. And there's something to it, and you can't put your finger to it, but for us, that's what it is. Yeah, fantastic. It's really interesting to to hear you talking about psychology and design. And I have a fantastic colleague called Eleni Kalentidou, and I'll have her on Impact Boom in the future. Fantastic. But she's really, really focused on, on yeah. this area, so yeah. it would be interesting to hear what she says about For sure, that as well. there's a lot we can learn from that. Mm. 
So sort of starting to begin to wrap up now. Yeah. I'd love to hear about, I mean, beyond your work, if you are aware of or have any other really inspiring projects from around the world that you'd like to, to share that you believe are turning complex problems into opportunities. There is a recent project that I discovered uh, a couple of years ago, I think it was, um, and then I think last year it became very famous. It's by an architect called uh, Alejandro Aravena. Mm. He won the Pritzker Prize last year. Yeah. And of course then, you know, that, that put him in the spotlight and there's a lot of talk about all the different projects he's done. But there was one particular earlier project he has done that for me was, gave me hope. Because also suddenly I realized there's other people thinking the same way and doing it successfully. So, and I was really starting back then. So it was really, really nice. And it's called mm. Half a Good House. And I think it's just a brilliant, brilliant project. Mm. Not in the way it looks, not in its aesthetic, yeah. not in the sculptural quality that we now are used to judging architectural projects yeah. by. There's nothing wrong with those. Mm. But for me, the brilliance doesn't lie there. The brilliance lies in the idea behind it and in the process that it took. Yeah. So it, it's a project dealing with a lot of different constraints. It's government money, etc., etc. So there was not enough resources to do a good house mm. for these families. Yeah. So what Aravena's team decided to do was to take all of those resources and build half a good house as opposed to a full poor house. Mm. Because house is real estate. Yeah. If it's done well, it, it increases in value. So he yeah. really gave those people, which are coming from nothing and which can't afford yeah. like housing like everybody else does, wealth mm. through architecture. And he gave them half a very good house that will increase in value. And the other half, the idea is that as the value the, uh, increases and as they do better and as they have more children... Yeah. Uh, then it's only then that they need more space. So then they will build the rest themselves based on what they need. Fascinating project. There's so much. And, and, you know, I go back and I reread about this every few months and it's just, it's really, there is, yeah, there's a genius in that. And for me, that's what architecture does. It's bringing, really affecting people's lives. Mm. Not another fantastic, you know, roof of a train station not yeah. even the train station itself but just the roof yeah. because it looks like something but that's it's got great a cantilever. exactly <laughs> <laughs> no that's fantastic i get excited about that as well and i'm sure there is like an engineering breakthrough in yeah. that and you know i've done that as well yeah. and that's great when it's not the only aspect of a project yeah. i i have nothing against that i mm. for me if we finish a project with my team all the way at the end and if it doesn't look beautiful it means we failed mm. so it is a measure of success but it's yeah. not a driver of the project sure. of course we have to do something that works and something that looks fantastic yeah. and it starts and ends with the people mm. and it has to be beautiful and yeah. it has to be eye-catching and it has yeah. to be a landmark and all the things you want mm. but it doesn't start and end there yeah. so i'm you know i'm not a socialist in a sense <laughs> some people would kind of take that as you know those are social architects mm. it's not about that it's just about you're creating environments and context for people to live in to yeah. spend time in yeah. and those will affect their psychic it will affect the way they feel what they do how they do it mm. it's a huge responsibility yeah. And I think we need to take it seriously. Yeah, absolutely. I can most certainly <laughs> see that you were very passionate about this, yeah, Stephanie, yeah. which is great. So to finish off, yeah. could you please recommend a few great books that you believe would inspire our listeners? Yes. Christopher Alexander uh, has a great book called The Pattern Language. It's actually one of three. Basically, any book you read by Alexander is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, there is a whole other approach to, uh, to architecture and environments and context and people in that, which is fantastic. Mm. Uh, Bookminster Fuller. One of my greatest inspirations, yeah. um, 
and all the stuff that's actually even not about architecture is yeah. even more interesting yeah. and, and more exciting there. Yeah. Yeah. A recent book by Charles Montgomery called Happy City, mm-hmm. it's very interesting as well. Then there is uh, there's a very recent book by one of my good friends, uh, Thomas L. Makora, called Recoded City. Mm. And this is all the same conversation happening on an urban scale, which we deal with as well, where you're wondering what kind of cities are we building, yeah. what's happening to our cities, what do future cities need, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of, you know, and, and they're really interesting from a human perspective. Yeah. You don't have to be an architect or an urbanist or any sort of professional in that field to enjoy that. Yeah. Yeah. And they're really just good questions to ask about, yeah, what is a happy city? Mm. What is a city of the future? What is a successful city? What is a human city? Mm. Fantastic. There's been some incredible insights today and I really, really appreciate your, your time and, and for sharing your knowledge with us, Stephanie. Thank you. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.